You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. What is going on? It is your host, Matt Labrie, and you are rocking with us on none other than the Decoding Success Podcast. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If it is your first time joining us, really excited to have you here, really grateful to have you here as well. And if you have been a recurring member, a returning member of our amazing, faithful community of listeners, and you're coming back for more value, more insights, more experiences, more knowledge, more wisdom, more values, all of that good stuff, I promise you, you are in the right place place, especially for today's guest. And I want to kick this episode off with the quote that is mentioned within this interview with this amazing gentleman who you are going to be introduced to in just a little bit. He said, if you want success, find out the price and pay it. Now, the beauty of that is the price is going to be different for all of us, right? all based on how we personally define success. And you're going to hear how Scott Adams, the founder, the creator of one of the world's most popular, and I'm talking global, on a global level, the world's most popular cartoon, which he created, and that is called Dilbert. Now, Dilbert launched in 1989 in a handful of newspapers, and now you can find Dilbert, which appears in over 2,000 newspapers in 57 countries and in 19 languages. Let that sink in. Think about the beginning of that in 1989 where it was just in a handful and then by now it is in over 2,000 newspapers in 57 countries. That is absolutely incredible. But on top of that, Scott didn't just settle for being a cartoonist. He is the New York Times bestselling author of two books and I should say he's the number one New York Times bestselling author of two books, The Dilbert Principle and Dogbert's Top Secret Management Handbook. But on top of that, he also has other books and one of them is what we are talking about today towards the end of this interview. And on top of that, Scott has dabbled with ventures and entrepreneurship as well. So hearing the perspective from multiple different areas of his life, whether that is in business or as a cartoonist and launching that type of project, which was very much so a passion project, him being in corporate, the list goes on of what we are diving into today. And I'm really excited to be able to amplify his message to all of you that are tuned into this right now. And to that point, this wouldn't be possible without our amazing partner over at Acadium. Now, I'm sure you've heard me talk about Gen M. If you are a returning member of this show or a returning community member, I should say, of this show, which is a platform that allows for you to be able to find remote interns that can help you with daily tasks for your business or for your passion projects, just like one of Scott's, right? So if you're looking for some added help, some extra help in regards to maybe some graphic design or WordPress help or social media help, whatever it is that you're looking for, I guarantee you that you can find some help on this platform called Acadium. They have an amazing database of interns that will work with you remotely at 10 hours a week. And you want to know what is effective and affordable. I am so excited to share this with you. To be able to check it out very simply, all you have to do is go over to the show notes of this episode where you'll be able to find a link that will direct you there. You can check out the database totally for free. You can, you know, refine your search based on location, skills needed, all of that good stuff. So make sure you check it out. Shout out to Acadium for helping bring about this amazing episode. And now without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Scott Adams. Scott, first and foremost, man, I need to say thank you. Express my gratitude toward you for hopping on the show and having your success decoded. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Now, Scott, first question for you. This is how we kick off the show here. I need to know, how do you personally define success? 
Well, I think that's individual. So everybody has to have their own their own definition. But for me, it's usually uh, happiness. So if you can figure out how to get happiness, it doesn't matter how you got there. If, if you're happy, you're happy. Right. Now, what is happiness to you today? <laughs> usually it's involved with health and being productive and having my relationships in good order. So at the moment, all of those are looking really good. Right. Now, to that point, you know, we could definitely fall off track. And I think that was uh, essentially the deep rooted um, answer that I was looking for right there. You know, so how do you make sure that your health and your productivity and your relationships are at least not maybe always on track, but, you know, at least getting back on track? Well, a lot of it is just making sure you have your priorities straight. And in my book, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And I talked about creating systems as opposed to goals. And systems means stuff that you do every day that doesn't produce an instant result, but is working you toward a variety of good outcomes, not a specific goal. So for example, I've got systems for exercise, I've got systems for relationships and for, for diet and career and all those things. So I just make sure that for everything that's important to me, I've got a system working. And then I work my priorities from the, let's say the center of the bullseye out. And at the center of the bullseye is your health. And so you got to get that right or else other people are going to have to take care of you. And then after that, fairly quickly after that is finances. Because again, if you can't pay for yourself, you're either going to die or somebody else has to pay for you. So you got to take care of yourself first. That's the, the first, uh, uh, I guess, level of success. And then when, once you've got that taken care of, you start looking at your loved ones and your uh, the people who are closest to you. If you get that taken care of, maybe you expand to your community or your job or your or, or the world. So it's, it's sort of a, uh, I see it as sort of a, uh, let's say a circular situation where you're starting at the center and working your way out. Right. And I definitely agree with you, especially when it comes to putting yourself first. And oftentimes, you know, I'm a true believer that successful people are selfish, but in a good way in exactly what you just said, right? If you don't have your health in order, if you don't have your finances in order, how are you going to help anyone else? So I definitely appreciate you bringing that fact up. And I want to dive into those systems that you talked about, you know, systems instead of goals. And if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, you credited a lot of your success to affirmations, visualization, and written word, meaning like you would write down, you know, what you were visualizing and what you wanted to bring to fruition and bring about in your life. So how do you stay the course with those types of habits when you're not necessarily seeing the results that you want to see overnight? And overnight's a, a lofty term, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, a lot of it is just changing your, your mindset. And the example I like to use is a part of my system is to addict myself to exercise. And so part of the way that I do that is I reward myself. I make it a, a pleasurable kind of exercise. You know, it gets me away. I get to play with my phone after I'm you know, cooling down. And I go, go to a different place. You know, I go to the gym, which is a nice place in my case. So I make it a pleasant thing, and I never uh, over-exercise to the point of it hurting. So uh, the, the point is that uh, uh, often, and I'd say uh, maybe six times a year, I have the following experience. 
where I'll get in my car, I'll have my workout clothes on, and I'm not sure if I feel like exercising, but I, I know I can at least get to the gym. And I'll drive to the gym, I'll walk into the gym, I'll show my card, and I'll walk into the center of the gym, and I'll look around and I'll just say, nope, not working today. And I'll literally just turn around and walk directly out of the gym into my car and drive home. Now, if you, if you deal on a goal basis, you'd say, well, your goal was to go to the gym today and you failed. But if you, if you see the world as systems, you realize that my system worked perfectly because I was so addicted and habit habitized, if that's a word. I just made up a word, I think. Uh, it's it was such a, a habit that even when I knew I couldn't do it on some level, my body and brain just weren't up to it, I still got there. So I, walk, I, I drive away thinking, damn, good system. You know, it got me here. So for a few times, I have to drive home without success. All the other times I go there and I do work out. And sometimes I surprise myself by having a little more uh, energy than I thought I did. So that, that's one example of a system is you, you can find you can find immediate gratification in having worked the system. So, you know, if I go to the gym and I work out, I, uh, you know, I might spend a few minutes see, <laughs> looking in the mirror to see if my muscles got bigger. But basically, you're, you're going to say the victory was that I got to the gym. The victory was not some end state. Right. So to that point, like, I, I guess I have to ask this. I mean, out of total curiosity here, like, why do you even go to the gym at that point? Like, I understand the system is so strong that, you know, you're compelled to go. But if you know that you're, or maybe I, maybe you don't know that you're going to get there and not work out. Like, I, I'm curious to go a little bit deeper on that to understand that. Well, there are two situations. One is that you're sure you can't work out and then you surprise yourself and you do. And the other one where you're sure you can't work out and you don't surprise yourself. Sure enough, I can't. So um, I, I allow that my system will at least get all of those times when I wasn't sure I could, but it worked out okay. And there tend to be more of those. It's probably, I don't know, 80% of the time I surprise myself and I get at least a little bit of exercise. Right. Okay, cool, cool. I definitely appreciate that. Now, Scott, let me bring it back, you know, before the 90s, when, you know, Dilbert hit its prominence on a national scale, and then to a global scale. Who was Scott? I want to know who was Scott in high school? Like walk us through that journey. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a very small town. There were only 40 people in my graduating class. Most of them I went to kindergarten with in the same building for, you know, every year of my, uh, my schooling. And there were maybe 2,000 people in the whole town. And um, I was valedictorian. So and in my tiny class, I, I had the highest grades by the time I graduated. And I was a little bit nerdy, but played a lot of sports as well. And uh, otherwise, I don't know what else to say about that. It was a typical small town experience. Right. So when did the whole cartoonist thing come into play? Was it something that you were always, you know, driven to do or, you know, were you always creative and artistic or did it just, you know, maybe something came about in your life that you were like, you know what, I want to try this. From my earliest memories, I wanted to be a cartoonist. So I think literally maybe six years old, I became aware of uh, the Peanuts cartoon, Charles Schultz cartoon. And I got, um, I actually learned to read in part because I wanted to figure out what the cartoon said. So I had access to some cartoon books of Peanuts cartoons, and I couldn't read them. 
but I love the drawings and I, I wanted to I wanted to be able to do that. So I think, you know, a big part of why I really cared about reading at that age was I wanted to be able to read the cartoons. So I always had um, almost, I guess, a, a built-in interest, you know, the sort of thing you can't generate that's either there or it isn't. And I, I thought even at that age that I would grow up to be a famous cartoonist. And I set my sights on that at that very young age, you know, between six and 11, that was my goal to be a, a famous cartoonist someday. But, but when I reached about the age of 11, I realized that there are billions of people in the world and they'd all like to be Charles Schultz because that was a pretty good job, but very few people get to do that. And so I became, uh, I entered what I call my rational phase where I thought that the odds applied to me. In other words, if it's a thousand to one against becoming a famous cartoonist or a million to one, I thought that should tell me something, tell me not to try that. So I became a rational person and went to college, got a good degree, economics degree, started working on my MBA while I was working at uh, big corporations, first the bank and then the phone company. And um, it wasn't until those careers hit uh, roadblocks that I, I started saying, you know, being rational isn't working. Maybe I'll try to be irrational. Let, let, let me dust off that uh, that ambition. I wasn't thinking at the time to be a, a world famous cartoonist. I just thought, well, maybe I can get a little side thing going. Maybe I'll get a cartoon published somewhere, get a few extra bucks, something along those lines. And But it worked out better than that, obviously. Right, right. So I want to bring that back to the point you made about being influenced by the peanuts. Now, my question to you on that particular topic is, how can we be motivated by an influential figure in our lives yet not be so enamored that it essentially halts our our movement forward in our pursuit of what we want? And I'll give you a perfect example. It's just like, if your dream is to play in the National Basketball Association and you absolutely are influenced by Michael Jordan or LeBron James, yet, you know, let's just, we'll use LeBron as an example. I'm on, I'm on the East Coast, so I'm in New York, and LeBron's on the West Coast, right? And let's just say I need to stay up until, I don't know, maybe 10, 10, 30, 11 to catch his games because he's out in LA, right? And my dream is to play in the NBA. I'm influenced by him. I want to watch every shot he takes, yet how many shots is LeBron watching of myself? So essentially what I'm getting at here is how do we not get caught up in you know, being overly influenced by these individuals or by something like the Peanuts? Well, I tell people to focus on what I call a skill stack instead of uh, a goal. So a goal would be to play in the NBA, uh, but it's probably a bad goal for most people. I mean, by the time you're in sixth grade, you probably have a pretty good idea if you're going to make it in the NBA. But uh, I tell people to just combine the skills intelligently to make yourself more valuable and to create lots of options. So I tried lots of things before cartooning, but I was always continually combining talents. So the reason that cartooning worked out is that I had exactly the right combination of talents. It wasn't because any one talent was exceptional. So I, I don't draw that well, and I don't, I'm not the funniest person in the world. I didn't have experience cartooning, but I could draw pretty well, you know, well enough. I could write well enough, I'm funny enough, and I had enough experience in business that I had a, let's say, a canvas and a, a body of experience to draw from to do my, my comics. So by putting together a bunch of fairly ordinary skills, uh, I managed to create something uh, extraordinary. 
that probably could have gone in a number of different directions because my my talent stack is pretty deep at this point. So I had a lot of options. So I tell people to increase their options by increasing their talent stack intelligently and, and don't be so specific that you want to play in the NBA if that's not obviously going to work for you. Now, you might say, but Scott, you, you did exactly that same thing with cartooning. But the, the fuller story is that I tried a lot of stuff. It was the cartooning that worked. And it worked because I did have the right set of skills stacked together somewhat accidentally. I wasn't really aiming at that at the, you know, for most of my adult life. So that, that's the path I take. Uh, combine your skills. Don't pick role models so much. It worked out for me, but I don't think that's a, uh, a good, um, you know, even though it worked out for me to become a famous cartoonist, even when people come to me and say, hey, I want to be a famous cartoonist, I try to talk them out of it. <laughs> <laughs> because because the odds are so low. Yeah, I definitely appreciate the transparency there. And, you know, to that point, you were mentioning your quote-unquote corporate jobs. So I have to only assume that you were working on Dilbert after those or potentially before that. So to that point, do you suggest that route, you know, in regards to having the quote unquote nine to five and then pursuing your dream after that. Sometimes, I mean, at the end of the day, we can get so caught up in things that we're up until four in the morning, right? So knowing the the studies of how important sleep is and things of that nature, is that something you suggest to someone that's potentially in the same position today? Well, I'd say there are a couple ways to do it. I, I love the stories of stand-up comedians who often tell the story of, you know, sleeping in a, on somebody's couch for three years and trying to figure out how to eat while they, while they honed their skills. So in those cases, they were just all in. And, and they did what a, uh, some famous millionaire once advised. And I wish I could remember who said it because I quote this all the time, but I don't know where it came from. Uh, and he said that, if you want to succeed, find out the price and then pay it. Now, it sounds like such a, a simple thing that it's, you know, you think, well, that's a bumper sticker. That doesn't mean much. But when you start <laughs> to apply that in the real world and you say, okay, those comedians who slept on couches and, you know, and ate out of trash cans or whatever they did for three years to work up their skill to become actually a well-paid uh, comic, those people decided they, they didn't say, well, you know, I'd like to be this. They decided. And they, they just said, what's the price? All right, got to sleep on a couch for three years and, you know, and, and eat uh, <laughs> droppings off the floor or whatever they're doing. And, and then they just did it. And for some it worked and for some it didn't. But for other people, and I'm certainly in this other class, I like job security. I don't want to sleep on a couch. So for me, based on my energy level, et cetera, uh, working a full-time job and then as I did for years, I'd get up at four in the morning to do my other job. So cartooning would be between four and six in the morning and then I'd go off to my day job and uh, it, it was exhausting and for 10 years, I didn't take a day off. Yeah, I worked holidays, I worked weekends, uh, I worked every day. Uh, and then eventually the cartooning was strong enough that I could do that full time. So there's not one path. And I think people, in some ways, they know themselves and they know their specific situation. So I would say pick a strategy that you think you could pursue. My strategy was to keep my day job and try lots of different things. 
Uh, and I used the following guideline to know if something was worth pursuing after I tried it a little bit. And you'll, you'll see this is one of the most useful things you'll ever hear. So if, if, if the listeners don't remember anything else, remember this one tip. Things that are going to work in the long run almost always work in their terrible form right away. So consider um, cell phones. When the original mobile phones were invented, they dropped every call. They were expensive. You couldn't call certain things. They were you know, heavy. They were really terrible. But people still couldn't get enough of it because it was, you know, it was a thing that people wanted. And, and you can find lots of examples of that. The, uh, even the first iPhone when they changed forms to a little screen with a, you know, well, a screen phone. The first iPhones were terrible. For almost a year, I couldn't make an actual phone call because it dropped the call every time. And, but that didn't stop me from buying another one. So, so you could tell that phones were something that were going to work from the first minute. You, could, you knew that that was going to work. Likewise, when I did Dilbert, uh, even though it started out poorly and was not successful when it first launched, it always had people who were super fans of it right from the start. So from day one, there were people who thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen. There just weren't many of them. But it was completely predictive that, that this is something I could produce. Now, um, I've got a startup right now called uh, Wenhub. We've created several products within it, and we're trying to see what works. And some of the products were really, really good by design. And I would say, now there's a good product. And we put it out in the market. And of course, just because it's me, I can get a lot of people to look at stuff. And a lot of people looked at it. And the first few things we tried, they just said, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, good job. But nobody was excited about it. And that's, that's very predictive, that if, if people aren't doing something with their body, they don't care. And I use that standard as well. With the Dilbert comic, people were cutting it out of the newspapers, and they were literally forming their own books out of cutout strips. That Literally, they were putting a binder on it and forming their own book. Now, when I, uh, when I heard from lots of people who were doing the same thing, it wasn't just a few people, uh, then when my publisher said, hey, how about a book of Dilbert cartoons, it was just obvious. We already knew that that would work because people were doing something with their body. They were take, picking up scissors, they were cutting it out, they were passing it around. But when we'd show them, let's say, you know, one of the first products we made in the, in the startup, they'd look at it and they'd say, yeah, that's interesting. I hope that does well. That's a completely different reaction. There's no body input whatsoever. So look for somebody doing something with their body to know if you've got a product that's worth pursuing. Right, right. And I think that's absolutely amazing advice. I'm very grateful you shared that. And to the point of the panels or the strips that you just brought up regarding Dilbert, one thing that I really love that you used to do is include your email address on them. And I believe that was for feedback. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And if it wasn't, or if it is actually, I should say, you know, when it comes to that feedback, when, when we receive the feedback, and I guess this is great because you were just talking about feedback as well. You know, when we receive that feedback, how do we necessarily know what we should act on versus what we shouldn't? And obviously, you know, there's the obvious where if you see something that continuously is being told to you, like saying, I don't know, tie your shoes, bunny ears instead of anything else, you know, you're, you're going to want to change that. But uh, I'm curious, what was, you know, that take there, you know, if uh, there was some differences, you know, how did you know what to act on and what not to act on? You specifically other people's advice? Correct. Well, 
Um, other people are a terrible source of advice, I've found. <laughs> if, if you were to take 100 people selected randomly, the, probably all of them are willing to give advice and they all think they have good advice. But maybe a few of those people are capable of giving good advice. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, I will tell you that when I was first uh, considering getting syndicated as a cartoonist, I made 50 sample uh, comic strips and then I showed them to my friends so that they could help me figure out which of the 50 were worth submitting to try to become a cartoonist. And I found there was no correlation. I would have them sort them into different piles of the good ones and the bad ones. And there was just no pattern whatsoever. Everybody just liked different stuff. So every bit of their advice was worthless. Every one of my friends, nobody really thought I would succeed as a cartoonist. I don't think my parents were especially optimistic that any of that would work out in the early days. So there's, there's this weird balance where other people do have valuable stuff to say, but it's really hard to know which people are saying the useful stuff. So I usually look to see if they've succeeded. If it's somebody that has succeeded, then, you, then it's worth a little bit more. I have to tell you this anecdote. When we were trying, a few years ago, we were trying to give funding for a startup I was working on, same one, and talked to one of the most famous um, venture capitalist, you know, angels in uh, in the business. I won't mention his name, but it's just somebody who was sort of a giant in that space. And we showed it to him, and he said, "Well, how do you get people to use this product?" And he said, "Well, we'll advertise." And then he said, "I have a rule." He said, uh, "My rule is that I will not invest in anything." that requires advertising because that's sort of an indication that people don't organically want it if you have to advertise it. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, thanks for your time. And as we were walking out together and the meeting had ended, I said, so which of your investments look really good now, the ones that you're already invested in? What, what ones are, are you optimistic about? And I won't mention the startup he mentioned, but when he did, I said, how do, how do people know about that? And he said, we advertise. So this was the most skilled, uh, successful person at the top of the investment game who had given me the advice five minutes earlier, I don't invest in things that require advertising. And then when I asked him what his top, most optimistic product was, it was one that required advertising in his own words. Now, that's the kind of advice you get all the time. It's, it's contradictory. It comes from a good source. It's still worthless. And so the only defense that, you know, against that, the fact that other people think they know what they're, they're talking about and often don't, is A-B testing. In other words, you just got to try stuff and see how it works. So you're going to get a lot of advice in your life. And probably the only way you know it's good is just take it for a test drive. See if it gives you the result you wanted. Uh, that's the only way you can know. I don't because people are full of advice, but not all of it is good, and it's impossible to tell until you test it. Hundred percent. Now, Scott, to the topic of advice, what was a piece of advice that you've been given in life that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but ended up, you know, proving true over time? Oh, those are the hardest questions because <laughs> I have to search my entire lifetime. So the, the so the question is bad advice that or that I thought I didn't want to take that I eventually did. Is that the 
Well, essentially any piece of advice, you know, and I'll give you a perfect example. I was not a nerd. I was actually the complete opposite. I was actually really bad in school only because I didn't put any, you know, put forth any effort. So my parents always told me, you know, you need to study. You need to, you need to do your homework. You need to do this. You need to do that. In the long run, I always got pushed through school because I went to private school up until I went to college. And the next thing you know, I failed out, you know, so that was advice that I didn't want to hear, but it proved to be true over time. Well, let's see. I would say um, I'm really good at following the odds. So, for example, going to college improved your odds, so I did it. Getting a, getting an MBA improved my odds, so I did it. And adding skills improves my odds, so I did it. I even moved out of uh, my small town immediately upon graduation from college uh, and went to San Francisco because the odds were better. So I'm generally... Um, on the right path, even in retrospect, like if I look at my you know career arc, every, pretty much every time I took the high percentage play, and it worked out. So it's hard to it's hard for me to think of a bad advice. I will tell you that my father, when I was young, told me that a good career would be to work for the post office because they have really good benefits. And he worked for the post office and he thought that could be a good fit for me. So that's the kind of advice that I often get. <laughs> um, so I've, I've received a lot of bad advice. Uh, not so much good. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let me actually hop back to what you said earlier. And it was honestly a you know an amazing piece of advice that you gave all of us um, regarding things that are going to work in the long run, typically always work in the beginning, right? That, that's essentially how to sum that up. So I have to ask you, when it came to Dilbert, were you turned down by the New Yorker and Playboy? My question to you is what kept you going in that, you know, in, in that moment, right? If it wasn't necessarily working in the beginning, right? What, what kept you going forward? Well, there's a, there's a really fun story that answers that question. So when I first thought, hey, I think I'll try some cartooning, I didn't know how to approach it. And this was before the internet. And people listening to this are probably saying to themselves, oh, yeah, before the internet, how would you find out anything that wasn't standard? You know, it's not, it would be hard to find a book, et cetera. So as luck would have it, I was uh, looking just flipping through the channels on television one day, and I caught the end of a television show uh, about how to become a cartoonist. Now, I'd never seen this before. I haven't seen it since. And I missed, I don't know, 28 minutes of the half hour. So I didn't even get the advice that was in the show. But as the closing credits were scrolling by, I quickly grabbed a pencil and wrote down the name of the show and the host and where it was being broadcast from. And I sent a snail mail letter and I said, I missed your show, but I'd like to become a cartoonist. Can you point me in the right direction? Give me some advice. A couple weeks later, I got a two-page handwritten letter from the host of the show. His name is Jack Cassidy. He's still alive. Uh, he's still a working cartoonist. And he answered all of my questions. And then he gave me these two valuable pieces of advice. He said, it's, a, it's going to be a really competitive business. And you'll get a lot of rejection but don't give up. And then he told me what book to buy that told me where to submit samples and, and what the samples should look like, et cetera. So I bought the materials, you know, the art materials he suggested. I got the book he suggested. And then I put together what I thought were my best comics. And I sent them off to the 
two publications that paid the most, uh, New Yorker and Playboy. And both of them rejected them with just photocopies of rejection slips. Literally, I didn't even get a personal rejection. I just got a photocopy of a rejection. And I thought, well, okay, I guess cartooning is just one of the many things I have tried or will try. This didn't work out, but I gave it, I gave it a good try. So I felt okay about it. I put my um, art materials in a closet and I just forgot about it for a year. So a year goes by and I go out to my mailbox one day and there's a letter from Jack Casty, the cartoonist who had given me the original advice a year ago. And I hadn't even communicated with him. I hadn't even thanked him for his advice. So it was weird that he'd send a follow-up letter a year later. And the letter said that he was cleaning his office and he came upon at the bottom of a pile the samples that I'd sent him a year earlier. And he said that he was just writing to make sure that I hadn't given up. Wow. That, was the, that was the only point of the letter. There was nothing else there. He said, I just want to make sure you haven't given up. And I had given up. And I thought, well, he's a professional cartoonist. Well, you know, it's such a strange letter to, that somebody would send a follow-up letter to a random person he didn't even know from a year earlier. And I thought, he might, maybe he sees something. You know, maybe he's got a little extra, you know, the X factor. He sees something that New Yorker and Playboy didn't see, and even I didn't see. So I decided to get my materials out of the closet and raise my sights. Instead of trying to be a cartoonist for, you know, a publication that would, you know, print a, a comic every now and then, I decided to try to become a syndicated cartoonist, which means you make a deal with a syndication company uh, if you can get that deal. That's the big break for a cartoonist. And then they would sell it to newspapers all over the world, uh, as many as they could sell to, and they would turn it into licensed products if that applied, etc. So... I put together some comics which were loosely based on my coworkers. Uh, that became the Dilbert comic and submitted it to the big comic syndication companies. There were, I think, about five of them at the time. And the rejections started trickling in. And one by one, the rejections came in. They were not especially encouraging. In fact, one of the biggest syndication companies actually recommended that maybe I could find an actual artist to do the drawing for me. <laughs> so they didn't even think that I had the minimum qualifications of even drawing the right kind of pictures. Uh, but when I thought I had all the rejections, I once again took all my art materials and put them in the closet. I thought to myself, well, now I've tried twice. And I gave it my best shot. I mean, I put a lot of energy into it, but it didn't work. You know, that's life. You move on to the next thing. And a few months go by, and one day the phone rings. And it was a woman who identified herself as an editor for some company I'd never heard of, some company called United Media. And I hadn't sent my samples to anybody by that name. So I figured, well, this is some third-rate scam company or something. And she said she wanted to offer me a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist, you know, the, the biggest break a cartoonist could ever have. But I hadn't heard of her company, so I was a little wary. And so I said, you know, I'm very flattered by your offer, but I haven't heard of your company, this United Media Company. Are there any, any references you could give me? Is there any cartoonist you've worked with in the past who's succeeded? You know, have they been published in any way? And there's this long pause on the other end of the phone. And then she said, yeah, we publish Peanuts and Garfield. And when she got to about the 12th name on the list of famous cartoonists, 
I realized that my my negotiating position had been compromised and I didn't know what I was talking about. Turns out United Media was the biggest name in the business, but it was the corporate parent name that I didn't recognize. I I recognized the subsidiary uh, at the time. So I said yes, and that's where it all started. That is honestly phenomenal. And I want to kind of ask this random question here, but when it comes to hearing no, right? Hearing no, especially if you're in business or, you know, you're, you're pursuing your dreams as a cartoonist, whatever the case is, how did you deal with hearing no? You know, uh, especially because it gets kind of deprecating at times when it comes to self-deprecating thoughts, all of that stuff honestly can creep in. So how did you personally deal with that? Was it different for you because you had that job security, as you mentioned, and you weren't living on the couch? You know, we, we had that comparison earlier in the show. So I'm curious. Well, it certainly helped that I didn't absolutely need it. So that, yeah, that's part of the, the psychology of it. But there are a few factors that I can't quite identify in myself that I don't know if I'm born with or it's, a, it's part of upbringing. But from my earliest experiences, even strangers told me that I was going to be rich and successful someday to the point where by the time I was 25 and I wasn't already rich and successful, I was actually confused. because I thought well this doesn't make sense if strangers are literally telling me that my life is going to be extraordinary why isn't it why is it taking so long so there's there's never been a point in my life and you know I would say my my mother in particular always thought that something would good good would come out of me and I don't think there's ever been a point in my life when I didn't think something amazing was ahead of me and so when I get criticisms or no's, they just sort of uh, wash off. They, they don't really change anything because I'm so certain that things will work out. I just don't need them to work out today or tomorrow. They'll work out. So I don't know where that confidence comes from. And I don't know if you can develop it. I don't know if I was born with it. I don't even know if it's a mental defect. Maybe it's a mental defect to be that confident against long odds. So... Uh, I can't pinpoint that, but I will tell you, um, I, I came by it honestly, meaning there's no point in my young life when I didn't think I would be at least this successful, whether it was this job or something else. Hopefully, um, for the individuals that may not have been born with something of that nature, hopefully there is a way to develop it because I think that mental resilience is definitely a thing of beauty. So, you know, make sure you're giving yourself credit for that. And to that point, I'm really inspired by the fact that, you know, you never gave up on that dream of Dilbert to the point where by 91, I think you were in a hundred papers. And then by 2000, you were literally in 2000 in multiple countries. I think it was 50 plus countries in 20 plus languages, which is so phenomenal. And to that point, what or where is that healthy balance between being unsatisfied yet accomplished at the same time and grateful for those accomplishments? Well, there's sort of a curse that comes with success, at least the kind of success I have. I'm sure it's different if you win the lottery or something. But um, whatever it is that drives me or drove me to work so hard to get where I am doesn't switch off once you get there. (laughs) Right. So what you imagine incorrectly is like, oh, if I get X amount of money or X amount of success, I'm going to retire and just live the good life and, you know, just enjoy what I've, I've accomplished and all that. Nothing like that happens. Not even close. Now, of course you do, one does enjoy success and what comes with it, of course, uh, very much. But 
you never can be satisfied because whatever it was that was driving me before is still there. It's just, it's baked into me. So I wake up every day thinking that I'm not nearly as successful as I could be or should be, and that I better, I better work harder to make that happen. Now, because of you know, where I am in my age and uh, my career, et cetera, I'm a bit more focused externally in terms of what can I do for the world success-wise. For me, success would be something I did that made the world a better place at this point. Um, but if I did something that made a billion dollars, that would be great too. So I, I just have this <laughs> nagging, nagging feeling that I should do more all the time. Um, I don't know that you can get that if you don't have it. And I'm not even sure you'd want it because it, it's hard to be happy if you're in a perpetual state of, you know, I could have done more. <laughs> but but to, your, to your question, when I first got the big break of the cartooning contract, I, I made a promise to myself. And the promise was that I would never have to look back and think it, it would have gone better if I'd worked harder. Now, you can, of course, make mistakes. Everybody does. So I wasn't telling myself I would never make a mistake or, you know, have to have to apologize for anything or fix something. But I did make a promise that there was one thing I had complete control over, which is how hard I work. And I said, I will never, ever put myself in a position where I look back and say I squandered that chance. And that's how you get 10 years of working day and night. So I, I made that promise and I kept it. A hundred percent. And, you know, one thing that you're continuously doing is striving for more still. I mean, you just put out a book. There's literally, you know, you've accomplished so much yet you're, you're still putting out content like that. So I got to ask you, what made you want to put out Loser Think? How untrained brains are running America today? Like what compelled you to say, hey, it is officially time to put out a new book? Well, I spent a lot of time on social media, mostly Twitter, and you see good and bad arguments and you see how it, um, it divides people, especially if people can't tell the difference between a good argument and a bad argument. It's one thing to disagree, but it's a whole other problem if you don't know how to even think about your situation productively. And what I notice is that there are people who have experience in certain fields, certain domains, that have learned how to think productively, but maybe don't think of it that way. Uh, whereas there are other professions, let's say an artist or a musician, where they could be geniuses in their field, but would not know the basic thinking strategies that would be just ordinary and, and uh, routine for an economist, let's say. I'll give you a perfect example. If I say to a musician, tell me if you think the president is doing a good job or a bad job, and it doesn't matter which president we're talking about, just a president, that musician is likely to give you a firm opinion yes or no, and they're going to say yes because or no because, and they'll give you some reasons maybe. Now, you take that same question to an economist. Is this president doing a good job or a bad job? And the economist, if they're on their game and they're good at being an economist, will say, compared to what? Because that's how an economist thinks. An economist can only judge things compared to the closest uh, realistic alternative. And since you only have one president doing that job at that time with those choices, with those variables, there's no way to actually know if your president is doing a good or bad job, unless I do something crazy like, you know, attack Greenland or something that's obvious. But within the normal realm of, you know, a politician doing politician stuff, you really can't tell if the other president who didn't get elected could have done twice as good, even if things are doing well. 
no way to know. So the, the, uh, the musician in that example would believe he or she did have common sense and did know how to answer that question. Yeah, this president is good or bad. The economist would know that's not true. Now, that's just one very, very small example where the economist learns to think in a productive way that other people just haven't been exposed to. And I'm not saying economists in particular are the the smart ones. So what I do is I take the best thinking styles from different domains that maybe people haven't been exposed to and just put them all in one book. So at the very least, you would know what a thinking error looks like so you'd know to avoid them. Right. And to the point of you on Twitter, Scott, I I really admire the fact that you're essentially unapologetically yourself. So to that point, um, how do you find the, I I guess, I don't even know if the word is courage, but um, I guess we'll go with that one because I don't want to use the word uh, balls or guts or anything like that. Um, So how do you find the courage to not necessarily risk a platform or, or something of that nature, but how do you find it to, you know, find it in yourself to be yourself, especially when you do have a platform, especially when people do look up to you and, and things of that nature, especially taking into consideration that, you know, maybe you say something that might offend someone or, you know, the world we're living in right now. So I, I feel like that's a, a question that I'm really curious to hear your answer to. Well, I'd love to tell you it's because I'm so brave and uh, I'm just a rogue and I'm a rebel. But uh, a lot of it comes from the fact that I have FU money. So it, the worst case scenario for me career-wise is that I stop working and enjoy the fortune I already make. So I don't really have a downside like a lot of people do. And I'm at a certain age where I could retire tomorrow and nobody would would think it was even unusual. So I don't have the risk that other people have. And then secondly, when you have a job like mine where your job is to be provocative and, and often funny, people will simply let you get away with more as long as you're entertaining and you're you're true to yourself. And And that's the third tip. The third tip is... If you act in character, people will accept you even if they don't like it. The people really hate hypocrites or people who look like they're lying or people that look like they're phonies or posers or something. People have great, um, great ability to accept people who are just themselves. Uh, take Willie Nelson, a random example, right? So <laughs> Willie Nelson, you know, bad boy pot smoker until recently all of his life, you know, broke all the rules, etc. But Willie Nelson was always Willie Nelson. So there's something about staying in your character that the people will appreciate, even if they don't like the stuff you're doing. It's weird. So, uh, so those are a few of the things. Then I think I probably have a, a higher risk profile than the average person, but I'm not sure that comes into play because I, I have more safety than other people in being provocative. For sure. So if people could only take one thing away from your new book, what would you want that one thing to be? Humility. Humility. Um, Yeah. The humility to think that there might be uh, better ways to think that your common sense does not make obvious to you. So if you have some humility that you hear an argument from somebody Um, And here's how I apply it. Every now and then I'll be debating with somebody on Twitter and they'll make they'll make a strong point that maybe I don't don't agree with immediately. But when I see the strong point, I'll sometimes click on their profile and I'll say, oh, it's like a Ph.D. (laughs) Somebody disagrees with me and they've got a Ph.D. in this field. So apply a little humility and say, well, maybe this time I'm wrong. Maybe this time it's me. 
maybe maybe I'm missing something. You know, maybe there's something about their experience which changes their their filter. So humility is your greatest friend in terms of understanding reality. You've got to allow that sometimes the other person is right and that's okay. So that that's the one thing. And then if you want to fill in those gaps so that your humility is less necessary, that's what the book does for you. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Humility is absolutely huge. Now, Scott, I know you do a whole bunch of these interviews. I'm sure you've done them all throughout your career. What is a question you wish more people would ask you and what would be your response to it? Oh, I would love for people to ask me uh, how to make the world a better place. Like, what am I doing or, or what would I like to see done that would just make the world better? And my quick answer to that is that uh, I don't think we can tax enough or or have a high enough GDP to pay for everybody who needs everything, uh, especially seniors and and etc. So I think we're going to need to transform society into lower cost living that's also excellent. And I use the example of the best quality of life I ever had was in this tiny little dorm room in college. And the reason that it was my best life, even though the physical you know, room I was in was the worst of my life, is that everything else was right. I had you know, the friends, I had interests, I, had, I could walk to classes, I didn't need a car, I didn't need to cook or shop because there was a cafeteria, entertainment was everywhere. So I think we can redesign towns and cities and, and uh, communities so that uh, everybody can walk outside and get everything they need at a, at a really low cost. And that's more of a design challenge than a cost challenge. So I think that's going to come. And I'd like to see more effort in that. Anyway, that, that's probably not what you expected. But I, I'm sort of at that point in my life where I'm trying to be more helpful to the bigger picture, you know, society in general. And I think that's probably the biggest thing we have to get right is low cost uh, lifestyle. Oh, I, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, I 100% agree with you. I often say that I feel like, you know, the most fulfillment I've ever received, which I oftentimes compare to a significant other giving me like a butterfly effect comes when I'm impacting people. So um, at 27 years old, I'm trying as much as possible to do things of that nature. I might not be at the point where I'm able to design a town and make that a reality right this second, but I definitely respect that and uh, appreciate you sharing that response. So thank you for that. And in regards to legacy, which you've obviously already created, if you could only be remembered for one thing, what would that one thing be and why? It would be for my book, Had It Failed Almost Everything and Still Went Big, where I introduced two ideas that I think are already changing the world. Uh, One is the systems versus goals. Uh, You'll see that a number of people express that in different ways, but that all came from me. And the talent stack idea, because it gives you a simple, practical way to get ahead that statistically is just so solid that it would be hard to deny. So those two things I already see being worked into the fabric of people's awareness in a way that other things I've done are just entertainment. You know, Dilbert will come and go. It had entertainment's valuable in in and of itself. But, you know, after I stop making it, I don't expect Dilbert to last that long you know, uh, except as a memory. And, but the concept of talent stacks and systems versus goals are trans, they're, they're sort of transformational. And I think those will stick around. Right. I love that. Awesome. So Scott, last question for you. I want to respect your time here. If 
you could only give one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that advice be? Uh, well, if you don't count the, the, the things that I just mentioned, uh, if I had to give one piece of advice, that's a great question. This would be like the master advice of all advice. And exactly. it, goes, it goes like this, start with your health, meaning, meaning fitness and diet. You got to get that right. Because that's going to affect your energy, your brain, your social life, your career, and everything else. If you don't get that right and you don't make that your top priority, nothing else works. That's awesome. That's huge. I mean, we've had people like Tony Horton, the founder of P90X on here, um, a whole bunch of health experts and uh, doctors and things of that nature. So it's definitely something that rings bells. And uh, listen, when you hear it from people that I personally consider successful over and over and over again, it's very clear to me and our amazing community here that, hey, health is most definitely a priority. So Scott, I definitely want to, again, express my gratitude for you hopping on here. But to that point, where can people keep up with you on social? Uh, I'm sure the books are on or at all major retailers. And I'm going to have all of the links in the show notes of this episode. If you have any special projects going on, such as, you know, what you have going on with OneHub and things of that nature, it would be awesome for you to share it. Well, I would say the best way to find most of my stuff is through my Twitter account. My Twitter name is uh, at Scott Adams says, all one word. And Dilbert.com is where you can find all things Dilbert and Loser Think, my newest book. As you said, everywhere books are sold. I love it. I love it. Scott, thank you again for taking the time out of your day. I truly do appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, directly from our friend Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. I am really grateful to be able to amplify this message to you and all of the advice and the tidbits and the golden nuggets that Scott shared. So I want to give a huge shout out to him. Make sure you're connecting with him on social. He is most active on Twitter, which I am sure you were able to pick up from this episode. And on top of that, you can find all his other social handles and website links and all that fun stuff in the show notes of this episode. So to that point, if you found this episode, Scott's advice, our questions to be of value. If you felt like the success that was decoded here on today's episode was of value to you, what I'm going to ask you to do is to make sure you are leaving a rating and review. Those are absolutely huge for the show. That's how we're able to get amazing guests just like Scott on here and the repeat guests and so on and so forth. On top of that, make sure you're sharing this with your friends. Make sure you're sharing it with your masterminds, your family members, your so on and so forths. Listen, it's absolutely huge to do that. We would absolutely appreciate it on top of it all. As always, it is time for me to break down three of the points that resonated with me on the utmost highest level. The first one being taking advice for a test drive. Now, I know that Scott used to leave his email address on the panels of his cartoons and while they were being published throughout this entire globe, so I could only imagine the influx of messages he was receiving, my thought was that he was doing that for feedback, which is what we discussed in this episode. Episode, and when I asked him the question, he said that he's received advice from the best of the best and it proved to be BS in ways. So his advice to all of us was to make sure that we are taking advice for test runs. And I could very much so resonate with that in multiple different facets of my life, whether that be business, whether that be personal and relationships, so on and so forth. It comes down to number one, identifying what that, you know, number one actually is identifying who the hell's giving you the advice. If you want relationship advice, 
from someone that's not married and you're looking to be married and that's what you're talking about hey like maybe that's the wrong source so identify who your source is then you need to validate if their advice is actually applicable to you or not and that is by testing it I think that's actually absolutely huge so take that advice for a test drive before anything else I think that's absolutely huge second point if you want success find out the price and then pay it we opened up the show with that Scott mentioned it within the interview it is absolutely huge and success is different for all of us so the price is going to be different for all of us as well obviously you could find some you know common trends and things of that nature throughout whomever you find yourself aligning with but you need to know what the price is for your success you need to find that out and then you need to pay it I absolutely love that so Scott thank you for sharing that number three is not giving up listen the people that we idolize in life never gave up which is exactly why they are where they are today for instance whether you look up to Michael Jordan or LeBron James whether you look up to Scott whether you look up to Damon John or Grant Cardone or Dan Locke or Patrick David or Marie Forleo or Nicole Lappin or Michelle Obama or Barack Obama Donald Trump whoever the hell you look up to they are where they are today because they didn't give up so no matter where you are in your journey let this be the universal polite smack in the face to tell you hey wake up you are not to be quitting at this point in your journey you're not to be quitting at all I definitely want that to be known so again those three points are number one taking advice that you receive for a test drive if you want success find out the price of your definition of success and what that looks like for you and make sure you pay the fucking dues lastly do not give up use this as your universal polite smack in the face it ain't a backhand it's a very gentle tap on the cheek to wake up and know that you should not be quitting no matter where you are in your journey keep pushing forward even if you can't even see ahead make sure you look at my social posts that I put out on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that good stuff I just ranted on that topic as well now until next time everyone be blessed peace